0: Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now and KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. For this episode, we're talking about the biodiversity crisis and the interconnected threats all species, including humans, are facing on our planet. Environmental journalist Michelle Newhouse moderated this conversation with panelists, Paula Sweden, Conservation Northwest Senior Policy Director and National Wildlife Federation Chief Scientist Dr. Bruce Stein in May at the Crosscut Ideas Festival. If you don't know exactly what biodiversity is or why it's in crisis, you're not alone. And these experts say that's part of the problem Sweden says our individual day-to-day and societal actions are making big impacts around the globe, disrupting ecological systems that have been functioning for thousands of years. During this talk, you'll learn why Sweden suggests we need a holistic perspective on ecosystems and their management, and how if they function properly, they support human life in turn. You'll also hear what these experts believe are the current most pressing threats to biodiversity. One takeaway here, Stein suggests that when we consider 21st century conservation, the extinction of some species is inevitable. But he says the ideas of adaptability and evolution of species are things we should be keeping at the forefront of how we approach conservation. I hope you enjoy this interesting conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at
1: crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Michelle Nyhouse. I'm an environmental journalist. I'm a longtime contributing editor of High Country News. I'm also the author of Beloved Beasts, which is a critical history of the modern conservation movement. I'm so glad you could join us today for this great panel. So we are here to talk about the biodiversity crisis, by which we mean the interconnected threats faced by all species, including our own and we face habitat destruction, pollution, disease, and of course, climate change. I think the three of us here today, myself and the two panelists who will be joining me in a minute, um, agree that the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis cannot be addressed separately. They are, they're deeply intertwined, both their causes and their impacts. Um, but I think we also agree that there are ways to address them both um, at levels that range from the global to the local, and we're going to talk about that today. So I am honored to be joined by Paula Swedeen, who's the Policy Director for Conservation Northwest. She works on wildlife and wildlands policy issues at the state capitol and beyond, including wolf conservation, forest policy, and more. I am also joined by Bruce Stein who is the Chief Scientist and Associate Vice President of the National Wildlife Federation. Bruce is a leading expert on species extinction and biodiversity conservation. And over the past decade, much of his work is focused on advancing the science and practice of climate change adaptation. And I know he's recently spent some time in the Caribbean. We were hearing about um, old growth sponge forests as well as the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest. So welcome to both of you. And hey, um nice to,
2: be, nice to be here, Michelle. Thank you.
1: Yes. When we talk about solving or reversing the biodiversity crisis, I think many people assume, just from reading the news, um, that that means putting an end to human-caused extinction. And most, you know, often we think of the extinction of large charismatic creatures. But solving the biodiversity crisis is about much more than that. Right? what it, What does it mean to both of you who are so immersed in this work? Paula, maybe you could get us started. Sure. So I think you're absolutely right that uh,
3: most people's connection to biodiversity is through some sort of charismatic species. Um, but when when an animal or a large plant like a large tree is is near extinction and we're talking about trying to prevent their extinction, the, the problem has has advanced um, really far and it, it will take or would take an enormous amount of effort um, <clears throat> and so one aspect of the biodiversity crisis I think that we need to think about is acting intervening and acting sooner um, prior to uh, say a species becoming listed on our uh, US Endangered Species Act or um, state-based lists and then I think the other thing is that when we have a like a single species focus, um, we're losing sight of the fact that you know all all creatures are part of um, of ecosystems, and when a species starts to go extinct, it's it's usually going to take something else with it, and it's also usually a sign that the ecosystem of which it is a part um, is not doing well. And so you know we need to take a, a, a much more holistic perspective. Um, we need to think about you know abundance of species. We need to think about their interactions, and we need to think about how we can manage you know entire ecosystems to um, not only prevent individual species extinction but make sure those ecosystems are functioning um, you know f- for their own uh, integrity and um, continuity but but also for um, all of the support they provide to humans.
2: yeah, yes. and just to just to build on that, you know we, we often think about species and species extinctions when we talk about the biodiversity crisis, but biodiversity is so much more. I mean, biodiversity really refers to the variety of life on Earth in all its array, Um, species, ecosystems, and the genetic complexes that make up populations and species. And so, first of all, we, we need to think across those various levels we also need to think about how do we ensure that systems um, remain functional? Uh, Species, the evolutionary processes that maintain species, the ecological processes that maintain ecosystems and provide the services, the ecosystem services as we refer to them, that that are of direct benefit to people, And, and the genetic processes, the gene flow that ensures healthy animal and plant populations and species. So one of the things that I think is uh, important to think about is how do we maintain the capacity of species and ecosystems to continue to adapt to changing conditions. It's something that we often refer to as adaptive capacity. And although we've got newfangled word adaptive capacity, you know, Aldo Leopold back in the 40s nailed it when he talked about uh, as part of the, the land ethic, health of the land, the capacity for self-renewal uh, of these systems. So I think, you know, as we think about conservation for the 21st century, it's not just about species extinction and stopping that as important as it is, but it's about ensuring the continued ability of species and ecosystems to evolve and adapt. Yes,
1: um, Michael Soule, a conservation biologist who I, Spent a lot of time with during my book research. He often said that what bothered him most about extinction was not so much the death of a species, but the end of birth, by which he meant, you know, the end of um, the end of evolution, the end of the inability, the ability of a species to adapt to changing conditions. Um, so there are many levels of diversity from genetic to ecosystem to uh, and beyond. Um, and we also have different levels of conservation authority, so to speak. We have the state level. Uh, we have the tribal level, which we'll talk about a little later on. We have the community level, federal level, global level. So Paula, you're you're sitting in Olympia, Washington, um, dealing with state politics. Uh, Bruce, you've spent most of your career uh, working at the federal and international level. Um, from from where you sit, what do you see as the most pressing threat to biodiversity, and what's your main concern? So I'll uh, I'll I'll kick off that conversation. So yeah,
3: um, well there's there's multiple, and and I I think that in itself is important to remember yes. that the, the <laughs> threats come from many different directions. Um, but one of the biggest I see is just. Um, a lack of ability for um, for us as a society to be able to understand how our individual actions and the systems that we operate in our economic systems, our social systems, our political systems, um, how we can't see the impacts of our day to day activities on biodiversity. So you know, there's an there's an accumulated. Um, there's an accumulative impact of of all of our um all of our actions. And I think about you know, and and I think we we probably all hear this a lot, where sometimes there's shaming about consumption patterns, right? It's like, oh, you, you know, and, and there's been great research recently about how people who live in um relatively affluent parts of the country or affluent parts of the world are responsible for the largest amount of our carbon footprint. But it's really difficult for an individual to understand that when they purchase something, like to know like what that means for um, m- like, where did those materials come from? Like, how were they mined? How were they um, transported? Like all of the individual things. It, and um, as I've thought about this over the years, I've been working on these issues for for over 30 years. And as I've thought about that, I think they're I, I think it's almost intentional. Like we're almost intentionally separated mm-hmm. from um, how we live our daily lives and um and and how we um understand those impacts and that separation makes um attempting to come up with policy changes really difficult and it also makes it easy for people who don't want to see those changes to drive um either drive wedges or um make it uh make it hard for very uh busy politicians to be able to sort through um, a bunch of competing information, especially if a policy they're going to pass looks like it's going to have um, an impact either on you know, consumers or an individual sector of an industry. Um, and, and for us to be able to make the connection between like, no, like we really need to do this. It, and maybe it's not as painful as we think it is. But even if it is a little bit painful, isn't it worth it? And it's very hard for people to understand that direct mm-hmm. connection so I um I, I see that separation of of you know just even our agricultural production systems I mean that's not an area that I work in really um, closely with the exception of working with ranchers on wolf conservation we don't know people don't know where our food comes from and and people mostly don't know where where their lumber comes from um, or or don't don't understand what happens when you log a forest to be able to build a house like what that you know what that does to um, to a forest and the, the the scale of the impact, so that to me is one of the biggest threats. Just our our um, inability in such a highly uh, differentiated, complex society to be able to understand the the, um, the impacts of our individual actions on um, ecosystem.
1: Right, right. Even in a state like Washington, where the you know the effects of overconsumption of of the forests are, are you know, are quite visible. Um, they're far enough away or perhaps delayed enough that it just drains the urgency mm-hmm. from those arguments. Yeah. Bruce, what do so, you
2: have so to i So I'll take a slightly different tack in addressing uh, threats. Um, first of all, in order to come up with uh, conservation responses, we need to have a pretty clear understanding of the problems and the scope of the problem. Uh, some of my past research has focused on understanding how many species in the U.S. are actually at risk of extinction. And, and it's in excess of a third of our species are are imperiled or, or uh, at elevated risk. And this may surprise people, but there's over 150 U.S. species that already are extinct. That is, they are already gone. The biodiversity crisis is not something off in the future, right? We are living. Yeah. Um, so what is it that's causing these? Uh, extinctions and, and these uh, imperilment levels. Uh, we looked uh, a number of years ago at what the leading factors were, and not surprisingly, habitat loss and degradation in its various forms was the, the number one um, driver of, of species imperilment. But second was the uh, problem of non-native invasive species, uh, species that are found in other continents that make their way over here intentionally or unintentionally. And then, you know, they don't have their natural uh, checks and balances. And so they wreak havoc. I mean, I'm, as Michelle said, I'm, I'm actually sitting here in the Caribbean right now because I've been diving this past week. And uh, invasive lionfish from the Indo-Pacific have been eating their way through the Caribbean reef systems uh, mm-hmm. because there's no natural predators. So that's just one example. Um, and of course, there's, there's other you know, pollution, and we, we did a great job getting rid of certain classes of pollutants, like DDT, which allowed the bald eagle to come back, uh, but there are others, and then emerging diseases, like chronic wasting disease and others. Um, but I think we have to call out climate change as that's my number one concern now, not because it is the, the near-term threat to most of our species, but it is a threat amplifier it is basically making all of these other threats more potent. Uh, Obviously, there are certain climate change-related impacts that are, you know, once you reach certain temperature levels, lethal thresholds, uh, you know, you start seeing direct population effects. But we're seeing the changing climate really ramp up the effects of our existing threats and then add some new ones on top of that.
1: Yes, I think this... It does require us, as the saying goes, to hold not just two idea two opposing ideas in our head at the same time, but many many often opposing ideas in our head at the same time. Um, climate change is a threat, however, so is habit so are things that are perhaps so familiar to us that we think someone must be working on them. Habitat destruction, um, invasive species. These are all still very, very um present and um, ongoing problems um, if not worsening problems um, so let's let's talk about solutions um, I'm I mean I'm interested to have the two of you here talking to each other again because you're you're working at different levels of governance um, and I think there are you know if, if <laughs> one thing I've learned about conservation from reporting on it uh, for many years is that it it has to be done in many different levels. Um, So Paula, Paula, what's happening at the state level, at the state of Washington level that you are especially encouraged about, that you wish that more people, not only in Washington, but anyone who might be listening, um, that you wish more more of those people knew about? Yeah,
3: so there are some really exciting things happening in Washington. Uh, We just finished our 2023 legislative session and uh, we actually made some Uh, really big gains in both the the climate and the biodiversity fields and the intersection and so um a lot of my work these days is directly in that intersection trying to um work on uh what's now known as natural climate solutions and um that that term really refers to um Restoring natural ecosystems, one so they're um, resilient and have that adaptive capacity that Bruce was talking about. Um, but the second thing is to look to natural ecosystems to help us draw down excess CO2. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, the state of Washington passed our Climate Commitment Act, and so it's a state level cap and trade system, um, and it was modeled um, after California's, but uh, has some has some improvements. Um, and there are, so, so just a little bit of background, in a cap and trade system, the um, larger uh, polluters have to um, purchase emission allowances um, in order to you know, meet their required annual reductions of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And um, the, the funds that are created by them having to purchase their emission allowances at auction um, now go into the state budget. And the law was written, so there's um, three different buckets of, of how that money could be spent, um, you know, and in a way to help us both with mitigation, the mitigation and adaptation parts of climate change. Um, and so I was very involved uh, myself, and and lots of my colleagues were involved in ensuring that one of those buckets um, was a natural climate solutions account. And so this year was the first year that um money was going to be available and it's uh, this was a budget writing a you know a biennial budget writing year and so there were over um, 200 million dollars that were um, allocated or appropriated from the natural climate solutions account to various aspects of helping the state deal with climate change um from you know from that uh ecosystem perspective and so one of the things that uh that we worked very hard on and were successful um, at was uh, getting 83 million dollars to help protect some uh, structurally complex older forest on uh, state lands and state dnr lands that are um, otherwise available to log and so these are stands that aren't quite old growth, but um, but they have enough complexity, enough plant diversity, enough structural complexity that if you were just to allow them to grow, um, they're going to continue to improve in their um, you know their hosting of biodiversity, but also in their carbon sequestration capacity. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, if those stands were to be logged. Um, there will be net emissions, net carbon emissions from the logging of those older forests because our forests in Western Washington, especially really, really strong carbon sinks. And so mature, mature forests and old growth forests um, contain, you know, hundreds of years of accumulated carbon, not just in the above ground, you know, in the trees and the plants and the dead wood, but also in the soil. And after that's clear cut, that kind of disturbance just causes a, a great release of CO2 and there is some carbon that's stored in in wood products, but it's a much smaller amount than was in the forest. And then that will decay. So we got money to conserve some of those forests, and then also for the state to buy replacement land. So they will be purchasing um, uh, timberlands that are uh, you know can, that are currently being managed for intensive wood production, but not very high carbon sequestration. And so the the, the budget law is going to require them to. Um, To manage these forests for a higher level of carbon sequestration than they were before. So, so this one, so this is, you know, it's kind of groundbreaking, um, and it's only, it's only the beginning um, as as far as uh, um, you know, as, as far as our intentions. But it was the first step in uh laying the groundwork and laying the um sort of muscle memory and uh you know conceptual idea that our forests do play a really important role in combating climate change and not only that but when they're managed correctly they're um they're a, a reservoir of biodiversity which you know which we need for um resilience and just that ongoing uh um, you know continuity of our um of our forests and everything that depends on them
1: Right, and, and, and intact, intact source, not just, uh, I mean, I think people hear a lot about the importance of planting trees, but, you
0: mm-hmm. know,
1: trees that are planted in the ground are not going to be um, great carbon, uh, perform great carbon storage functions and for many, many, many years, but the intact mm-hmm. forests we have mm-hmm. are performing a great service, um, and it's important and, in fact, crucial to protect them from what mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. Very important distinction.
2: We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition.
3: Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me.
2: Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info.
1: So the the state of Washington, just I'm going to bring you in here, Bruce, to talk about the the federal and and international picture, but can the state of Washington go ahead and and act um, more or less independently, or, or was this progress dependent on things happening at the national and international level? So this particular um, action was not.
3: So mm-hmm. you know it was state-based legislation, and you know I think we all know that there's um, there's been incredible uh, activism and attempts to get um, some sort of uh, you know either carbon tax or cap and trade system passed at the federal level. I mean that that's been going on, at, you know, at, at least since Obama's years, um, and, and and you know, somewhat before then. But there were there was hope during the Obama administration that that would happen at the federal level. But in the absence of that, states have had to step up and act. Um, and and mm-hmm. so this legislation was not at all dependent on um, what was happening at the federal level. We hope to to spur. Um, you know, action at the federal level. Um, And, you know, California was the pioneer in this. And uh, our state will likely link its cap and trade system to California's. Um, And, uh, you know, Oregon is working on similar stuff. So we'll have, you know, sort of this whole West Coast corridor. Um, And that, so that's, you know, that's in the realm of climate change. And in the realm of species conservation, there's, you know, there's huge interplay between the Federal Endangered Species Act and the state. Um, And then there's also, and and I will, um, let bruce talk about this a lot but there's a lot of federal programs um that states can take advantage of for um habitat conservation and restoration um and you know and i haven't even started talking about the whole connectivity aspect of it yet um and so if there's time later i will get into that but there's a strong interplay between state and federal policies on on those issues as well
1: yeah that's key um bruce anything you'd like to add about solutions or potential solutions that you are particularly excited about, um, things you think people should know
2: more about? (laughs) To to me, one of the most exciting developments is that um, the federal agencies and state agencies as well and the resource managers are beginning to take uh, climate change more seriously and incorporate it into their conservation planning and design and their resource management. This has not been the case for, uh, in, until fairly recently. In the early 2000s, I mean, I spent 20, 25 years working in more traditional biodiversity conservation work. And in the early 2000s, we began to see the first evidence that climate change wasn't something off in the future, but that the fingerprints of climate impacts on uh, species and ecosystems were here and now. And people began talking about the, the need to you know do climate adaptation in addition to the important work of reducing um, emissions, which is referred to as climate mitigation, what, what uh, Paula was uh, speaking to in terms of car capture, carbon capture. Um, but let me tell you, in the uh, 2000s, climate adaptation was considered taboo. It was considered taboo. Al Gore, for all the fabulous work he did, you know, did not seriously talk about adaptation because there was a sense that if we talk about adaptation, it takes the pressure off of doing the hard work of mitigation. Right. That's right. So, I remember that. Yep. You know, but what we discovered uh, clearly, as impacts have been accelerating, these things are not competing; they are complementary. We need to do both. Right. We can't uh, adapt our way. If we don't get uh, emissions under control, there's no way we can adapt our way out. But even if we do get emissions under control. The changes are baked into the system so much that we are going to need to be dealing with the impacts for a long time to come. So uh, one of the things that I've been involved with working with federal agencies on is developing an approach that we call climate smart conservation that really uh, sets a framework for how do you consider what the projected climate changes, climate impacts on your resource of interest, and then very specifically develop responses that are not just kind of general resilience, oh, this will make things more resilient, but it's actually specific to, here's the climate impacts and risks, what are the actions that we can take that will directly and intentionally address those climate impacts and risks? And a lot of that has to do with acknowledging that conservation in the 21st century is not about going back to the way things used to be, right? The old frame was, You know restore it back to historical condition we now need to think about what is the future condition that it's going to be different and sometimes it's going to be disheartening but we have agency we can do things that will make the outcomes better than they otherwise would have been and so to me we are beginning to see uh, state and federal agencies really take these principles of climate smart conservation incorporated them into their resource management. And now uh, through the ma- massive federal funding coming through the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, we're beginning to see the, um, the resources that are flowing there make it a requirement that people begin to be very explicit about you know how is this going to address the particular climate impacts that are facing uh, the system that you're focused on.
1: Yeah, that's good. That that is a real shift in approach, isn't it? Um, and it's been a long time coming.
2: It, it and it is hard for sure. people. Let me tell you, uh, conservation—the root of the word conservation is conserve, and mm-hmm. it's the same thing as conservative. And so, we, right. in the conservation community, tend to be very conservative, and we, you know, we don't want to let things change. We want to either keep it the way they are because we've already lost so much, or go back to the way they can they they were. But uh, let me also just add one thing. One of the, the more recent uh, ways that we're getting uh, folks to think about this is by encouraging to, to them to actually manage for change, not just persistence. And there's a there's a term that's being used, the RAD framework. Which, is a former surfer, I grew up in Southern California. I think that you know that's a great acronym. But it refers to resist, accept, or accommodate, and or direct. That is, there are times. Yeah we have to resist those changes because things are so precious, there are other times when we're just going to have to accommodate uh, these climatic changes and other changes, and still other times when we are going to have to actually direct where the trajectory of change moves if we're going to end up with anything uh, with a semblance of functionality.
1: Yes, that makes sense. So the couple of things we've talked about as far as solutions, they they are or at least aspire to be um, beneficial for both biodiversity and and climate stability. But there are a lot of climate solutions that have some pretty big potential impacts on biodiversity. And and the argument is often, well, you know, look, we're just going to have to make we're just going to have to make some trade offs. There, this is the climate emergency is an overwhelming existential crisis, which you know, of course, it's true. Um, we need to we need to give some ground on biodiversity. Are those kinds of trade offs necessary? Um, and if they aren't, I'm hoping you say you'll say they won't. <laughs> they aren't, won't be. But um, how can we avoid them, or how can we at least argue effectively against them? So, I mean, it's a really
3: interesting question, and um, I am not. Uh, so I'm going to say a few things, and if I'm wide of the mark, uh, please let me know. But I know one <laughs> of the places where this discussion is happening um, in Washington State um, is around energy siting, and yes. we know that we have to like really ramp up construction of um, you know large scale solar farms, of wind farms, of um, pumped energy storage, uh, manufacturing facilities for all the components, um, more transition transmission lines um and there's there's a couple different aspects of that and and there is some um well, well there's a lot of concern in uh the conservation community in my organization because we we have a program um that is looking at conservation of the shrub step ecosystems and um and not just localized conservation but you know connectivity up up and down the whole what we call the connected backbone from southern washington up into um Uh, into southern British Columbia and migration corridors of um, species even before you consider adaptation are important, but then species are going to have to move north um, in in order to to adapt to climate change as things get hotter. And so you can't have um, a 5,000 acre uh, solar farm that like interrupts the migration corridors of of pronghorn or um sharp-tailed grouse or sage grouse and yet there are we're, we're speeding ahead in terms of uh the state granting permits to solar development companies that are not taking those things into account so there was a piece of legislation this year that was trying to balance the two that was trying to say okay we need faster permitting. We need to have all the state agencies that are involved in um, allowing for clean energy projects to move forward at an expeditious pace. Um, uh, we need to do that, but at the same time, let's uh, put together a series of programmatic environmental impact statements to try to look at the cumulative impacts, and we were able to get language in there about um, ensuring that we look at connectivity and the impact to interrupting connectivity corridors, if you were to mm-hmm. place. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm going to give a little shout out to the Nature Conservancy. They put out a report um, earlier this year called The Power of Place, um, and they looked at west-wide um, the, the <clears throat> Essentially, infrastructure demand for clean energy, um, and uh, also overlaid that with um, areas of very sensitive, uh, uh, you know, biodiversity and and nature resources. And the the top line conclusion they came to is that if we are careful, we can build out this infrastructure without having to um, <clears throat> to destroy biodiversity. We can avoid sensitive habitats. We can avoid migration corridors. We just have to take the time. Um, and and have a essentially have the political will to be really careful about this. So that's that is but one example of um, how I think we can avoid a conflict between um, uh, between doing what we need to for the climate crisis, which is you know switching over our energy sources, um, but doing it in a way that um, that conserves natural habitats and
2: the the connections between them.
1: Okay. Um- Bruce, anything to add to that?
2: I, I think she covered it pretty well. So if you want to go to questions, why don't we?
1: Yes, out? we have a few questions. Um, and one, I, I'm this is an, another question about trade offs. In a sense, um, where do you stand on the spare versus share debate when it comes to to habitat? Should we be focusing more on? land sharing uh, with other humans, sharing land with other species, or should we be trying to spare, quote unquote, spare large swaths of habitat um, and basically keeping humans out of them? I'd be curious to hear from you on that at both the state and the federal level.
2: Well, well let, me, let me start on this. I think it's kind of a false dichotomy, honestly, because we really need to have a whole landscape approach to this. Uh, it's not a spare or share. Um, in order for functional ecosystems and species, healthy species, it's clear that we need to have core natural areas, core native habitats that are well-connected. We also have to do what we can to, um, manage what I'll call working lands, you know, working forests, agricultural lands, ranch lands in ways that are wildlife friendly. Um, and then... Even urban areas which you know many people might consider to be, oh let's just create highly you know, really dense uh, population centers, there are great opportunities for achieving conservation in urban and suburban environments. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, right now there's a lot of uh, energy around sort of how much is enough, how much um, conserved lands is needed. And, and at the an international level, There, the recent Biodiversity Convention, um, the Conference of the Parties, adopted a goal of um, 30% of uh, the Earth's lands and waters in conserved status. Now, conserved does not necessarily mean locked up and, you know, sort of the key thrown away. Uh, It means there are certain areas that need to be protected in in their most pristine and intact state, and there are other areas that uh, really can be managed for human uses, but where biodiversity conservation has an important role to play. So I think, you know, increasingly the future of conservation is going to be about navigating how do we uh, use lands, how do we ensure that people have livelihoods in ways that don't completely undermine the biodiversity value and the ecological value of the lands that they are uh, farming or ranching or or you know, uh, doing uh, forestry activities
1: on. Yeah, and one place where we've seen a lot of um, a lot of discussion and a lot of progress on this is is with indigenous communities and indigenous nations, which are you know, uh, I think in many ways showing the way in terms of here's here's how it's possible to live sustainably uh, within ecosystems. Um, Paula, I know you have done some work with uh, indigenous communities and. In, Washington State. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Um,
3: sure. Yeah. And I want to,
1: you know, just be really
3: um, clear that in my discussing our our work with um, different uh, tribal nations, I'm not in any way like speaking for them. So, um, or yeah, just wanted to to be clear of that for the for the audience. So, um, <clears throat> we've a couple examples of big projects we've worked on um, is. Uh, uh, land acquisition in key places that were, um, you know, in the traditional territory of the confederated tribes of the Colville. and uh, these lands were very important for connectivity between um, the Cascades and the Rockies. So for critters like lynx, um, uh, and for you know con- continued movement of uh, of mule deer, which is a you know traditional food uh, for the Calville. Uh, for the colville tribes and we were able to acquire some key properties in that area um and rather than just you know keeping them under uh you you know non-native uh white ownership um we figured out a way to um make sure that those lands went back to the colville tribe um and it was something that was incredibly um, from from their words you know m- meaningful to them you know it's a, a, a small piece of of reparations but um you know it was a way for them to um you know get get lands back where they you know used to um, you know used to be theirs right their their people used to to live there and and um and do subsistence management and uh so that that's one aspect and then over on the west side um I'm a, a board member of an entity called the um, Nisqually Community Forest. And so mm-hmm. uh, the, the Nisqually River is um, uh, we like to say it's the only river that um, has its headwaters in a national park and um has its uh m- mouth in a national wildlife refuge. <laughs> um mm. but wow. all over there, you know, that watershed mm-hmm. again is the traditional lands of the Nisqually tribe. And uh, salmon conservation and um, access to uh, traditional hunting grounds is really, really important to them. So um, the Nisqually Land Trust has been operating there for a long time, um, mostly focused on salmon uh, salmon restoration and uh, acquiring and restoring properties right along the main stem of the river. Um, but one of the biggest tributaries to the Nisqually is called the Michelle River. And most of that landscape is is currently owned by Timber investment management organizations, or or large timber companies, and uh, research that was coming down the pike from a a couple of, or you know, several different places, suggested that um, the typical um, uh, industrial forest management in that upper watershed was going to make it really hard to recover uh, steelhead and chinook, which are both listed species in that watershed. Um, And so the Nisqually Community Forest was formed to try to figure out a way to um, start acquiring not just uh, riparian areas, but look at it from an entire watershed perspective and then manage those lands in partnership with the Nisqually Tribe. And so uh, we've acquired about uh, 4,000 acres um, and and we've also entered into partnership where um, the, the tribe is starting to be able to acquire some of those acres themselves in that watershed. And then the Nisqually um, the community forest is managing it on their behalf. And this is an example of what Bruce was just talking about. So this is not lock it up and put it away. Mm-hmm. We're doing a lot of restoration um, of uh, sort of simply structured uh, former plantation stands. And so managing for um, structural complexity, which will help recover the entire watershed. But in doing that, there's a lot of commercial thinning. And then we're doing some <laughs> experimentation with creating um, openings. So there's a the, um, recent research has found that a combination of having overall older age classes at a watershed scale plus strategically locating located openings will allow higher river flows um, during the hotter periods of the late summer and early fall, which really stresses out um, the salmon populations in the lower part of the river. So mm-hmm. we're doing a bunch of management on a holistic scale in partnership with the Nisqually Tribe um, in order to, uh, you know, in, in order to restore salmon populations. And that management is helping the forest become more resilient, and it's providing um, jobs and products to the local community.
1: Yeah, we we started out this conversation talking about connections, getting beyond single species, and remembering the connections among species and ecosystems. And many of these indigenous led conservation initiatives, I think, are are such a powerful reminder of those connections and also the connections between ecosystems and people, which we often forget. Um, As you say, you know, because, as you say, sometimes those connections are so distant or attenuated. Um, These projects are a reminder of how real they they are and how how crucial they are for all of us. Um, we have a lot of great questions and many of them revolve around what can be done, what can people do? Um, so I thought we could spend the, the few minutes we have left talking about that. I think conversations like the ones we're having now often end with a sort of you know, gesture of, oh, here's a few suggestions for individual action, um, you know, recycle, call your representative. Um, but I think those are those are very worthy. Don't stop doing that, anyone who's listening. But uh, they're hardly enough. So, so what are some ways that we can work together to make a difference um, for others? You know that we can meet the scale of this challenge to make a difference for other species and ourselves. Paula, I remember when you were when we were talking uh, before the before the event, you were saying how how sometimes um, just a few people getting involved in a state policy process can make an enormous difference.
3: Yeah. So so you had mentioned, you know, sort of writing your representative as something that's sort of commonly out there, but doing so in an organized way and especially at the state level. So even though, you know, we live in an evergreen state here in Washington, most legislative activity and um, is really oriented towards um, social and economic issues, and it's very hard to get. And 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 this is not a um, this is not a criticism. It's it's because you know they're very pressing issues, and the majority of the state budget, um, you know, is around education and around housing and around mental health issues, and these are all really crucial things. Um, and so a lot of times there's not there's just not enough sort of bandwidth um, for legislators to. Um, to work on it. But if they hear really consistently from their constituents that that um, biodiversity conservation, um, you know forest management, you know all, all of these things that we've been talking about are important to them. Um, and even getting like a you know a few of your friends and neighbors and organizing a um, you know re- requesting a meeting with your, State senator, or state representative, and and letting them know how important these things are, um, is it it really can tip the scale. Um, and at the state level, um, these these folks are very accessible. They love hearing. I mean, I you know my my background is is a wildlife biologist. Never um, conceived myself of being a lobbyist, and I um, I, I was amazed at the. Um, the the openness of legislators to hear from their constituents and hear from you know like re- regular people right and and so the more they hear and especially on um, spending these uh, these climate commitment act dollars in a way that's like the most uh, beneficial that, that gets us the most bang for our buck like just just knowing that there's folks out there that um that are interested in that and and you know demand you know, smart spending of, of those dollars, um, that, that could be, you know, hugely beneficial between, um, between this year and the, the next time that they, um,
2: convene in January. Michelle, I'd like to offer two very specific things for the audience. Uh, The first is we started out talking about species extinctions and the problem of endangered species, but really the way to get ahead of that is to keep common species common, as I think, Mm -hmm. you know, just intuitive. Um, yep. The problem is that the way conservation and species conservation is funded in this, this country, there's a lot of money that goes to species that are hunted and fished, because there's financing that comes through uh, taxes on guns and ammos and fishing gear. And, uh, and there's a lot of money, or less money, but money that goes to endangered species. But in fact, it's this middle group that are uh, either common or uh, declining, but not yet endangered. that really is where we can, they need the help. And uh, over the last decade or so, there's been an effort to really try and ramp up conservation funding. And there's an act that's been introduced in Congress called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. It came this close to passing last session and got dropped out of the omnibus uh, but it has been reintroduced uh, into the Senate this year, and we are very hopeful. And so I would say that people can, con- uh, you know, it, it does make a difference to contact your representatives. So that's at the highest level. At a much more local level, one of the things that we also know is that uh, insects and pollinators of all kinds are in decline. And one of the things that people can do is begin to use native plants in their own gardens and in their communities. Because most native insect species and pollinators, you you know, the the non-native horticultural plants that you get don't do much for them. So I would suggest those two very specific things, you know, support the recovery passage of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act at the high level and make your own backyard more wildlife friendly at the very local level.
1: Great. Um, so what I'm hearing is everybody, don't forget, really important habitat conservation and and climate action are happening at the state level, and know that it's uh, perhaps not easy, but much easier to have an individual impact at the state level than it is at the national level. Also keep an eye on the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. I agree, that's a really important way for us to start protecting those species that aren't endangered yet, um, at, but need our protection and get out there and start planting some native plants in your garden and tell your neighbors to do the same. And you can actually make a really big difference in terms of um, establishing pollinator habitat on a meaningful scale. So thank you everyone. Thanks for participating with your questions. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Uh, We are out of time and thanks to everyone who tuned in.
0: That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Michelle, Paula and Bruce for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold manager, audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson, we'll be back soon with another conversation.